Getting the smile and confidence you've been dreaming about all from the comfort of your home isn't a total mystery with Bite Clear Aligners. Just don't be surprised if all your friends start asking, what's your secret? Begin by ordering your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95. Bite Clear Aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces, plus they offer flexible financing, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot Start your confidence journey today with Byte. The Catch and Shoot podcast is a presentation of Pure Hoots Media. Catch and Shoot goes well with both red and white and is perfect with a workout of your choice. Our co-hosts are on both coasts, and they have all of NBA Nation covered. Adam Stanko in the Bay Area, and Noah Kozlov in the Big Apple. I'm Adam Stanko. With me is Noah Kozlov, as always. And and Noah, you and I have been been doing this podcast I, for, what, I don't know, six, nine months, something like that. I'm, I'm not sure how much time. But I don't think that there was a guest that, I was more nervous about interviewing than than the great Larry Brown, only because there's so much to get to in his life. And I felt like I didn't want to miss anything in my preparation, not necessarily what we would ask him about, but in terms of just being prepared that if he took it anywhere, that I'd be familiar with what he had done in his life. And uh, I think as people hear this, this interview, they're going to find out that um, you took the, the same approach and were super well prepared coming into this thing. Yeah, I think it's funny you said that, that nervous about, see, I was more nervous. I'd say not nervous, but I had more butterflies before speaking to Mike Breen because he does, you know, he, you know the lead voice, the NBA on, on ABC and ESPN. So that, and that's, that's where I aspire to be on, in, in the play by play world. So someone that you look up to like that, I don't know Larry Brown. Uh, you know, I know Mike Breen just a little bit, but thinking about interviewing Larry Brown, I was more nervous thinking about or, or more anxious thinking about how it would come off to the listeners if they end up at the end saying, how how could they not have asked about this? So I hope we got to enough because it's impossible to get to everything. And we didn't want to, we didn't want to just run all over the place and say, okay, so you were here and then you were here. Why did you leave here? Then you were here. Why did you leave here? That to me isn't, that's not a conversation. And we wanted to have a conversation. And I think that's what we did. And the conversation started with, and he's the hall of famer, Larry Brown. He's the only head coach with an NCAA title and an NBA title as a head coach. He did it in 88 with Kansas, Danny and the Miracles, Danny Manning. Then he did it in 04 with the Pistons when they beat the Lakers. He also won an ABA title as a player in 69 with the Oakland Oaks. He won an Olympic gold medal in 64 in Tokyo. He's a three-time ABA All-Star. His number 11 is honored at the University of North Carolina. He took eight different NBA teams to the playoffs. So how do you start a conversation with Larry Brown? Well, let's start with, Coach, what did you do yesterday? And aside from talking to us today, what else are you doing? Well, I'm just recovering from my fourth hip surgery. So uh, I I actually went to Quinn Snyder, who worked for me when I was with the Clippers, invited me to Vegas. So I spent some time in Vegas with the Jazz and 
learned a lot, um, even though I don't understand the game anymore. It's a different game. Uh, but it was great being around Quinn and his staff and watching the players. And then it took me two days to get out of Vegas. All my flights got canceled. But I'm in Dallas. My kids just left SMU, and I'm trying to figure out what to do next. What do you want to do next? Um, well, I'd, I'd like to do what Tex Winter and Johnny Bach and Pete Carell did, you know, go to some team and help young players and maybe young coaches. But I think the game has changed so much that I don't think they put a lot of stock in older guys, the value of old coaches. So I don't really know. Um, I get to watch a lot of people that, you know, have been important in my life that I coached or played for me, and they invited me. They always invite me to watch them practice and give my ideas, and I'm the one that always learns. Uh, Spent two years in Philly watching Jay Wright coach, which was an unbelievable experience in a positive way, and Got to see some other Philly guys, so that was fun. But, uh, you know, I've just been with so many great coaches. Kind of like to share what I was taught with some of these young players. Coach, you you mentioned that time that you spent in Philly when you had a couple years there, and I know you've described that period as as those coaches saving your life. Um, How? Why was that the case? Well, I'm not real good with idle time. And, uh, you know, this game's been so good to me. And, you know, coaches have been a big part of my life. And just having Jay allow me to come by and watch him and talk to him every day and be around his players and his program was phenomenal. And, you know, Philly, you know, with all the, the great schools there and coaches and then the high school culture. I had a lot of fun in that regard. It it allowed me to stay around the game and stay connected. But Jay was, well, one, you know what an incredible coach he is, but he's a better guy. And uh, just to watch the way he coached and dealt with his players and staff and made me feel part of it was, was just amazing. I uh, I loved every minute of that. No, I know you took great pride in how you looked on the sidelines, but how does that compare to what Jay goes through? Uh, what do you mean? No, uh, I, I I mean uh, I know I know how I know how long it took you you know to pick out suits and make sure you look good uh, on the sidelines, <laughs> but, but Jay Jay is on another level. Yeah, I did. I was lucky. I had to deal with Amani, and they took care of me. I think Jay gets his clothes custom made. <laughs> um, he wears all different kinds of pocket squares. And he he's always dressed to the nines. But uh, I was pretty proud of the way I dressed. Yeah. Um, I, you know, people took good care of me. I I grew up. My dad died when I was young, but I had a cousin that. You know, it was the same size as I was, and he used to always pass me down his clothes. 
so I always cared about how I looked. And then playing for Coach McGuire and Coach Smith, um, they cared very much about how they looked. I mean, matter of fact, when I was Coach Smith's assistant, we had to wear a tie and jacket to work every day because he was always um, concerned a prospect and his family might come in and visit, and he wanted us to look professional and, you know, meant a lot to him, and it's always meant a lot to me. I think we're going to get into a little dress code stuff later on then when we talk about Iverson, but I want to go back to something you said about not understanding the game anymore. What what about the game don't you understand and haven't been able to grasp? Well, I think players are playing too young. Um, if you if you look around now, the culture of the game, they're coming out. I don't, I don't mind guys coming out. Like you can come out in baseball, you know, after high school, you can play tennis or golf when you're young or be a musician, but basketball is different. Um, you know, years and years ago, if you look at the benches of NBA teams, they were with veteran players. And when the veterans got a chance to play, they were prepared to play. And it was all about winning. Um, now we get these 19-year-old kids, everybody's drafting them based on their athleticism and potential. And I don't know if they're all ready. I don't know if they all understand how to play. And I don't think it's their fault. Um, you know, when you go to college now and you play one year, people put you in a system. Um, and they really don't get a chance to really teach you. Uh, you know, when I was, my first coaching job, I was a freshman coach at North Carolina. So you didn't even play till after your freshman year. And that whole year was spent on fundamentals. Um, now the young kids go to teams that, most of the time, the best prospects go to teams with losing records. And maybe there's a reason there's, there's a losing record. Maybe there's, you know, bad management. Maybe there's mm -hmm. not the best coaching. Maybe there's not the best culture in the locker room. You know, maybe there, there aren't veteran players that are teaching kids how to respect the minutes they get. And I think they're put in a real difficult situation. I don't think it's their fault. Um, you know, I know the G League is is a really good way to learn. I, I think it's it's gotten better because now each team has their own, you know, G League affiliate. And a lot of the teams, you know, when a kid goes to G League, they're doing the same things that the parent club would be doing in terms of teaching and and, uh, you know, so when they do get up to the, the NBA level, they're aware of the terminology and the values the team may, may have. But I still think it's, it's, a, it's a video game now. The three-point shot, the bad shots, uh, you know, the, the way the game's refereed now. Allen would average 50, and Michael Jordan, you know, you, you can't even get near a guy. Um, and it's really hard to guard. Uh, so uh, shot selection is different. This analytics, I, you know, I trust all the information you can get to me is great. 
Um, but I was doing analytics when I was 14 years old. Um, you know, I was taught to look at a stat sheet and know what a good shot was and what a bad shot was. And the fact that we had to get to the free throw line a lot. We had to take a high percentage shot. We had to take care of the ball. We had to guard our own man. We had to get back on defense. Um, you know, we had to make our teammates better, do what we did best. Uh, now I think there's so many analytics that are taking place that are, people are forgetting what kids are cut inside, what their heart is like. Um, and the greatest quality, I think, is when you're a coach, you don't have to beg a guy to play hard. And how do you evaluate that? Uh, you know, coaches that have, have to coach effort usually don't last very long. Um, so I don't know. I, uh, I admire the ability of guys. Uh, you know, when I watch Golden State play, um, I'm just mesmerized by the way the ball moves and the, the way each guy makes sacrifices for one another. But not everybody can play like Golden State. Um, they have five guys that can get a rebound and initiate the fast break, and they're all willing passers. Uh, mm -hmm. I don't see that. I don't see the ball going inside. Um, and when I was taught to play, you know, if you got the ball inside, you had a chance to get fouled. You had a chance to take a high percentage shot. You had a chance to get an offensive rebound. And the last thing, you had a chance to get back on defense, and transition defense was was vital. So. I don't know. Um, it's just different. When you were coaching in the NBA, it was it was known around the league that you were a guy that that didn't play rookies very much, as you as you alluded to. How much of that was that? That's not true. That's not true. Um, you know, Buck Williams and David Robinson were rookie of the year when I coached them. I you know I played the best players. Um, Larry Hughes played for me in Philly early in his year. Jermaine jo Jones, who you probably don't even remember, started yeah, in sure. the playoffs against, against the Lakers. Yep. I, yeah, Todd McCullough played for me. I played young players. Um, if they deserved the right to play. Uh, but fortunately, in a lot of cases, you know, I had older play players that maybe were a little bit better or understood what we needed to do or taught the young kids how to play. Um, but, you know, it is what it is. These young players now, though, you got to remember, look at the rosters of teams now and the benches that teams have. They're not like they were years ago. Um, you know, when I went to Detroit, um, I didn't play rookies because we had Darko Milicek and he wasn't ready because we had Mimo Okor, Ben Wallace, you know, Rashid Wallace. But um, Mimo Okor and, and Tayshawn Prince were second-year guys, and they they started or played right away from me. So it just depends on what your team's made of. 
in that that 2003 draft that that Darko obviously went went second. The next three players were Carmelo, Chris Bosh, and and Dwayne Wade. And people have always wondered what does it look like if one of those guys ends up on the Pistons instead of Darko. So, in your words, what does that what does that look like? Not necessarily in 2004, but also the ensuing years. Well, I think if they'd have kept that team together, regardless of Darko's progress or not, they would have won about six championships. But um, the, when I got there, the, the talk was they were going to draft Carmelo without question, because obviously you knew who was going number one. And then they asked me, and I said, you know, I spent a lot of time with Tom Crane, so I knew Milwaukee. He knew Marquette very well, and I told him I loved Dwayne Wade, and Randy Ayers was very close to Chris Bosh because his kids played AAU with him and loved Chris. Um, and nobody, you know, they, they brought Darko in to work out, and he was really talented, but he couldn't get through five minutes in our workout. Um, and I was surprised that we made the choice. But if you looked at his ability and his talent, he had a lot. But he was an 18-year-old young kid that never played at a higher level than the third division in Yugoslavia. And when he came to us, you know, he felt because he was second pick in the draft, he should be starting. And it was a real hard adjustment for him. Um, but, you know, obviously those other guys were great and turned out great. But what people forget after we won the championship, they let um, a bunch of guys go. Mike James, who started for us, they let go Memo Accord. They let go Corliss Williamson. They let go Eldon Campbell was let go. Um, and we didn't add very much. We only added um, Antonio McDice, who was, who was great for us coming off an injury. So I, I think that team would have won for years. And then, you know, I got sick in the 17 games. Um, we lost the home court and ended up losing in game seven. Um, and then Darko started to feel and understand that I wanted him as an inside player. And he was getting better that second year and then broke his hand late. Um, but, you know, when you look at that draft and you look at what what we happened to pass up, um, I'm just amazed at what that team might have been like. Do you remember your conversations that night with the front office? Oh, I remember all our conversations, but... You know, we had a we had a great front office. You know, Joe traded and got Chauncey and got Ben Wallace. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, I walked in. It was the first time I went. By the way, nine of my teams went to the playoffs. I think. Oh, nine. I okay. Wait, I, I, mean, I don't know, but which which one I, I which know, one do you think I forgot? <laughs> I don't know. I don't know, but 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 if you look at you know. I, Detroit was the only team I ever inherited with a winning record. Um, you know, they lost four straight to Orlando, and I think that's why Rick might have gotten fired. But I inherited a really good team. And the only thing Joe asked me and, and John Hammond was, 
I want you to play memo core and 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 uh, Tayshawn up. We want to see if they can play. We think they can play. So we did that, um, and obviously they could really play. Um, but we just all got involved, and in I, I was really surprised we drafted Darko. But I, you know, if you looked at him and you realized he was 18 years old, and you saw his skill level. You know, they were convinced he was really a player. Now, Carmelo wanted, his agent wanted him to come in and work out against him. And the same thing with Wade and Bosch. But uh, his agent was smart enough not to let him work out with anybody. Um, and as a result, he made the pick, still won the championship. Um, and I still think, you know, if we would have kept some of those players and maybe, you know, I didn't miss those games, we might have won again. And me being sick, you know, cost me my job because, uh, you know, Mr. Um, Davidson, when I when I came back at the end of my second year, he asked my agent if I could guarantee him I'd be healthy, uh, you know, for the rest of the next season and they got in a big argument next thing I know he told me hey you know I want you to come back but we got another coach coming I want you to stay and I didn't think that would be fair to the new coach so unfortunately that was the end of my two years stay in Detroit so you think about that time with the, with the Pistons I'm always curious when you were coaching the Nuggets, you know, you were picking players up at the airport, taking them to look for apartments and cars and, you know, taking them to the movies, the racetrack. When you're with the Pistons, how much now that's a championship team, how much of that, that same stuff was still going on? Um, at, at first it was tough um, because, you know, I was, I was asking certain players to change roles. I mean, I was really difficult with Chauncey. Um, and it was it was kind of a challenge. Uh, but after about two months, uh, that team was like family to me. Uh, almost everywhere I've been, I've had a close relationship with the players. Um, now, I don't think I always handle every player the right way, and there's some I'd, I'd like to take back, but I've always felt um, a close relationship, not only with with the players, but with my staff, and my staff always had unbelievable relationships with players. I don't, you know, I don't buy this, that you can't have that kind of situation. It's a little more difficult now because so many players have so many people involved with their lives that it's it's not as easy to get as close to them as you would like. Um, I think there's a big difference in the NBA and, and college in that regard because pro players have a family and have the responsibilities. But, uh, you know, just when I look back on it, um, 
the relationships you establish with your players, whether it's pro or college and the coaches, that makes your job special. Who are the players that come to mind that you didn't handle the right way? Uh, there's, there's a few I'd like to keep to myself. Not many. I can count them okay. on one hand, I think. But, uh, but again, your job as a coach is to bring out the very best in the people you coach and to be there for them, to help them get better. Um, and also to make them understand the importance of, you know, things that will help your team be successful and maybe, you know, help you pe pass on things to kids that need to hear that. Because, you know, when some kids walk into a dressing room with a Reggie Miller or a David Thompson or a David Robinson, or, you know, I, or Ben Wallace or Rashid Wallace, people like that, uh, if they'll just take the time to listen and learn from them, you know, their careers are going to be unbelievable. But, uh, but you, you know, there are times where you always – wish that hey maybe if I'd have done it a little differently with somebody maybe it would have turned out a little bit better but I don't have too many regrets in that regard because I know I, every day I came to practice my whole goal was to make my coaches better and share what I was taught and be there for the players and uh, I don't think I shortchanged many people in that regard yeah, and you mentioned the, the relationships that you've had with your staff and just mentioned David Robinson. Can we go back to Pop and how did you even find him and what made you bring him to Kansas as an unpaid coach? Well, uh, Coach Smith worked for Bob Spear um, at the Air Force Academy after Coach graduated KU. He went in the service and he was stationed in Denver before the academy moved to Colorado Springs. And he was Coach Spear's assistant. Pop played for Coach Spear. And, uh, you know, I was close to Hank Egan when I was coaching Denver. And, you know, I was coached to Coach Spear. And I met Pop when he was at the academy. Matter of fact, Mr. Ibe asked me to help with the Olympic trials in 72, and, and Greg tried out for that team. Uh, and then he actually tried out for the Denver Nuggets, and I cut him. What was his game like? Why did you cut him? Uh, he was a hell of a player, but at the time we had a pretty good team in Denver. Um, but I think he could have been a ABA player and possibly an NBA player. Um, mm. You know, he had certain commitments, obviously, coming from the academy. But but we kept a relationship. And then um, I remember Coach Smith used to invite me to Chapel Hill every year before the season, whether I was a college coach or pro coach, and we talked. And uh, Pop was on a sabbatical at Chapel Hill at the time he was going to go there and then spend time with me and then I forget where else he was going to go after he left me at Kansas but 
he wasn't doing a lot in Chapel Hill. So I just said, come on with me and sit on the bench at KU. And I had, a, you know, I had, if you looked at who was coaching with me at KU, I had a pretty amazing staff. And he sat on the bench with me. And uh, then, then he went back to Pomona Pitzer. Uh, we even played a game against them when I was at Kansas. Um, tried to give him some money to help his budget. And then we just remained close. And when I got the Spurs job, um, I brought him and R.C. Buford and Alvin Gentry and Ed Manning with me. Um, and then he left one year to go to Golden State. Then I, he asked to come back. He came back to San Antonio with me. Um, and, uh, you know, the rest is kind of history. How but different? I've had, I've had some pretty good guys sit next to me that, uh, you know, have done pretty well. I mean, a lot of people say they have a tree. I have a forest. <laughs> so I'm pretty, I'm pretty happy about that. Your, your coaching forest is, is certainly remarkable. Uh, what, what was uh, Popovich and, and R.C. Buford like in, in, those, uh, in those early days? R.C. was just getting ready to, you know, he's still a college student, so he was in a, he was in a growth process um, just growing up, but a, a, a really good guy. Pop, Pop just has unbelievable values. He's bright as hell. He has a great background. He respects the game. He's not afraid to coach guys. Um, not looking to be a friend he's looking to make you better um and if you're fortunate enough to be around those guys you're going to benefit but he uh he had an unbelievable background you know when you play for bob spear and hank egan uh those were two pretty incredible coaches and i think they influenced pop in a in a lot of positive ways after you won the championship in 88 with um, that miraculous team, um, you know, there was talk about you returning to UCLA and it's, it really is one of the most seminal moments in all of college basketball history because, uh, Jim Valvano is up for that job. Coach K is up for that job. How close were you to, to taking that before you ended up going to the Spurs? Well, it, it was kind of crazy. Um, I, I coached there in 80. And um, my athletic director, J.D. Morgan, died. So that was one of the reasons I left, probably the main reason I left. Um, and then they came after me in 88. Um, and I wanted to go because uh, we had a new athletic director at, at Kansas. And I, I just felt it was it was time for me to go there because I had such a positive experience. Not that I didn't love, love KU. KU was, was unbelievable. But uh, when I was flying out, it, it came right after we won the national championship and they were on me, you know, and I felt a lot of pressure and I flew out there um, 
and unfortunately RC got in an accident so I basically went there alone and there was I, I got a lot of heat put on me about you know you got to take the job right right they had an AD named Pete Dallas who was insistent that if I didn't take the job right away they were going to lose all these prospects and the uh the president and chancellor was a chancellor young who had been there when I was there before and he tried to calm beat Dallas down and say no give Larry time because I told him I had to go back I had to tell the players we had a parade we had a banquet there was so many things that I needed to take care of before I could you know say hey I'm going to do it just give me a couple of weeks to think about and uh and when I went back you know, all the kids were happened to be in my house, and I I couldn't say I was going to UCLA. Um, I even though I told Chancellor Young, just give me two weeks and I'll be able to do it. Um, and so that's how it kind of ended up. Then Terry Donahue, uh, I was close to, called me and said, "Hey, Larry, they'll give you as much time as you want. Just take your time." And uh, it just didn't happen. And then. The, the next thing I knew, uh, Red McComb came and flew to, into Kansas and, you know, said, Larry, I want you to come and take over the Spurs and be president and coach and GM. And, and uh, I did it. Um, I, I don't know why I did it. I liked him a lot. He was really a charismatic guy and a great guy. And I, I ended up and I did it. And, no, I didn't want to look back on it. Uh, it's just kind of a crazy situation that happened. And then, so when you got back to Kansas and you told UCLA, give me two weeks, your team, your actual team was in your home when you arrived back home? Yeah, they were. They came by and we talked. I'll talk to them about it. And, uh, you know, I I had made up my well. It, it kind of, the two weeks happened after I told the kids I was going to stay. Um, you know, when I came back from UCLA, and then started getting all these calls again, and um, I had second thoughts about about whether I should stay at Kansas or not. I was I had some issues that I was trying to deal with. Um, so it just happened, and uh, you know, turned out, you know, UCLA got. I mean, UCLA ended up winning a championship a few years later with Jim Herrick, and you know, Kansas got Roy Williams, and you know, I ended up getting to be around some pretty incredible people with the Spurs and a great owner and Pop. R.C., David Robinson, Terry Cummings, you can go on and on. So, you know, it just ended up that way. You, you mentioned that you don't have you know, many regrets with players. Do you have, and maybe this situation is, is one of them to a certain extent, do you have any regrets leaving any of the jobs? Oh, all of them. Oh. You know, I mean... There wasn't one job when I, you know, I, 
I, we don't have enough time. I had a great reason to leave in every one I saw. Um, a couple I was told I had to leave. Um, but um, I, I can't imagine any anybody who's had the opportunities I've had to to regret what what happened. The, the situations I was given, not everybody gets. Uh, and you got to feel so fortunate um, that I was allowed to do that. Um, but if I sit down and try to explain why I left, people, you know, have their own opinion. And uh, I've read stories I left UCLA because I put them on probation. That was the furthest thing from the truth. Um, you know, I left Kansas. One of the main reasons I got in trouble at Kansas was its family was having trouble. And I, I self-reported flying somebody home. Um, which now is is legal, and there are a lot of things that have come out that aren't exactly really true. But to be honest, um, when you coach in the NBA and you get to coach in college and you get to play at the highest level, um, you just got to be thankful for that and hope that you did the best you could with the people you were working with. And when you look at um, some of the people that I've had the opportunity that have changed my life in a positive way and you see how their careers have turned out, it's, you feel pretty, pretty important. I'm pretty fortunate, and that, that's the way I look at it. I want to stay on that for a moment, but, but something from Kansas, this ritual that I heard about on the bench with your coaches, the part of the forest that you've grown called the power when your coaches would squeeze <laughs> their left testicle. Now that came from coach McGuire. Um, yeah, but you can't use it all the time, but there was, <laughs> well, I yeah, used, uh, sometimes I used it and it, it, uh, it really worked. I remember one time I, uh, my first year at UCLA when I was setting every kind of record possible. Uh, it was the first time we ever lost to SC at home. It was the first time UCLA ever lost an opening game in Pauley. It was the first time, you know, we didn't win the conference championship in I don't know how many years. It was the first time we lost two games in a row. I can go on and on. But that team ended up losing in the final game. Um, to Louisville, but I remember we were playing Ohio State when they probably had the best college team I'd ever seen. They had Clark Kellogg and Kelvin Ramsey and Herb Williams. Oh, they they were just incredible. Um, and there was a key possession, and I told the kids the power. Well, the, there was no shot clock, and the, the possession went on for an hour, it seemed like, and guys were turning blue on the bench. Uh, but we we eventually, uh, I had to jump up and call a timeout, and we ended up, before the timeout was being acknowledged, we made a three-point play. A guy got fouled, and Darren Day made a layup, got fouled, and made a three-point play, and ended up winning the game against the team that 
I thought was the best college team I'd ever seen play. <laughs> Wait, did you did you ever try that in the NBA? Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, that 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 worth getting coaches and players to grab their left testicle? Well, I didn't always ask players because they might have had a rebellion. But my, my <laughs> coaches were so so loyal; they'd do anything. Uh, <laughs> That's why. Awesome. That's funny. One of those guys, one of those guys was was Donnie Walsh. Um, of course, you go way back with. He, he said, this was back in 84, that that you never saw the effects of the mistakes. You never that you never saw the effects of the mistakes that you made on people. You agree with that? I, I don't know what you mean. Well, he said by he said that. by 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 moving around like you did. He said that you never really calculated, and he said that he never saw the effects his mistakes made on people. I don't know about I don't know about that, but um, you know, Donnie, Donnie and I were teammates together um, at Carolina. He's matter mm-hmm. of fact, he. He was Coach McGuire's godson. Hmm. And we both, um, Coach Smith hired us both. I was playing in the ABA. He asked me to come back and coach. And Donnie was going to be the other coach. And then Coach McGuire left the, the Warriors and went to South Carolina. Donnie went with him. And then John Lotz came with me with Coach Smith. But uh, And then after 13 years, at South Carolina, I hired Donnie to come with me, and he was going to coach and then eventually become the GM. That was the deal we had worked out. Um, but, no, he's, he's one of the my dearest friends and, you know, somebody I have a great deal of admiration for. But I hope he thinks that uh, I overlooked people's mistakes or I never looked back on you know I don't know I don't know I never maybe I never realized when I left someplace the effect it had on other people maybe that's that's the case um, and if that is then I feel bad about that because it's something you should consider Regarding those those North Carolina coaches that you played for, Frank McGuire and, and Dean Smith, obviously we could do days and days and it wouldn't cover what, what you probably learned from them. But when you think back on your time with both of those guys, what, what are some of the, the big memories that you have? Well, Coach McGuire recruited my mother. Um you know, my dad passed away when I was young, so she told me I was going to North Carolina. Pretty, pretty good decision. Then he left. And, you know, um, that was that was really tough, and because uh, he was so different from Coach Smith, uh, he might have been the greatest game coach of all time. Practice, all we did was scrimmage. You know, which was. So much fun. When Coach Smith took over, he was more, uh, I guess you'd say, of a teacher. Every 
every practice, you had a practice plan. Every drill was timed. Um, every drill was basketball specific. It was like going to a classroom. Um, and at when I first played for him, I, I didn't know if I could handle it. He was so different than Coach McGuire. But, um, God, the more you were around him, the more you realized that God made this special person that nobody will ever be like. Um, when you were done playing, uh, that was when you realized how much he loved you, how much he cared about you. Not that Coach McGuire didn't. I mean, Coach McGuire always stayed in my life. But uh, Dean called me almost every day, asking if there was anything I needed. Um, He invited me back to Carolina, always making me feel like I was something special. Do we have a couple of minutes? I'll give you a couple of interesting stories. We've, we've, got, we've, we've got as long as as long as you have. We've got it. Yep. Well, um, I remember we had the ninth pick in the draft when I was in Denver one year. And Coach, Coach Smith used to always help me in the draft because he always knew – he always had guys that were potentially going to be picked. And he would always share information with me, which might help you when you're going to – prepare for the draft and maybe have a selection you want that you know somebody else might take. Um, so one year we had a nice pick in the draft and he called me up and said, New Jersey is going to take Tommy Lagarde at number four. And I said, coach, we don't need Tommy Lagarde, but I heard, I'm glad you told me that because, you know, we heard they were going to take Bernard King. I'm pretty sure of that. And, so uh, he said, well, who are you going to take? And I said, well, we like Delando Blackman and we like Tree Rollins. And, you know, we're going to get a good ticket, number nine. And they're going to go good with David Thompson and Bobby Jones and Dan So we're going to. So uh, and I, whenever I got information, I always shared it with owners. It's a little different now because when I was coaching most of the time, I I watch college and I, I would always call my college friends to find out about players. And when we'd bring them in to work out, I worked them all out because even though you, you might bring in 55 guys, you might only draft two, but I wanted kids to know I cared enough about them to work them out. And then I wanted to see if they accepted coaching or not. And you know, what kind of kids they were. To make a long story short, I, we had 32 owners, but one of one of the main guys was called Shear, my general manager, who really was a business guy, a great guy. And he said, who are we going to draft? And we used to always put down the top 100 guys because the draft was a little deeper than by order of who we thought using our scouts and our coaches, everybody had input. And then we'd do it by position. And the rule of thumb is we're going to take the best player no matter what, you know, and prepare for the draft that way. And if it was close, we might go by position, but not normally we'd always go best player. But well, two minutes before the draft, coach called me up and told me Tommy Lagarde failed this physical 
and New Jersey was taking Bernard King, and he said, you're taking Tommy Lagarde, and hung up. <laughs> um, so now um, I'm, I'm afraid to tell my owners that, and it's called Shear. Um, and I found out that Tommy Lagarde had flunked because he had a bad knee. Um, well, the draft went on, and New Jersey, sure enough, took Bernard, then five, six, seven went, and all of a sudden, we're going to either take Tree Rollins or Bernard King in everybody's idea, and you only have five minutes in the draft. Everybody's dying to know who I'm going to tell them to take, and you got to tell the guy in Denver to call New York and tell him you pick. So the eighth pick went, and both of them were still there, and now everybody's going crazy. What are you going to do, Larry? You know, so... Uh, I whispered into the guy's ear the Denver Nuggets were the ninth pick and take Tommy Lagarde. Well, when everybody heard it, they went crazy. Tommy Lagarde, and by that time, it had gotten around that he had flunked the physical. And people weren't real excited about me. We flew him in. He flunked our physical. Um, and when we signed him, there was an exception made that if he hurt that knee, we didn't have to pay him, but if we traded him, his full contract was going to be guaranteed. So we were playing golf that summer. Oh, by the way, we traded him. Lenny Wilkins wanted to get rid of a guy, and he knew he knew about Tommy and wanted Tommy, even though Tommy could play maybe one game and maybe have to sit out a game. So I'm playing golf with Coach that summer, and and I said, Coach, why did you make me take Tommy? You knew he couldn't play. You knew he was hurt. And he said, Larry, I knew you'd be all right. <laughs> and that was just, that was just, that, that was the kind of person he was. And I, if you look back on my career, I, I drafted everybody from Carolina. Um, anybody you told me to, um, no matter what. Um, and matter of fact, we had the 60th pick, which is the last pick in one draft. And I was going to take Scott Williams. And he called me and said, don't you dare take Scott Williams at 60. I said, coach, we had him down in the top 20 in the draft. He said, well, if you take him, he's stuck with you. Otherwise, now he's got 29 other teams that can go after him and that was when you didn't have to guarantee a second-round contract. So right. he ended up going to Chicago, getting a bonus, and winning about three championships with Michael Jordan. So, But then you had him in Philadelphia. Not, yeah. Well, I ended up inheriting him. He had signed oh. a free agent contract, and people were really, really tough on him because when you're a – when you're a role player on Michael Jordan and then all of a sudden you're you're expected to be a star going somewhere else. It's not the easiest thing. So but but the the moral of the story is, you know, Coach cared so much about the people that played for him and coached with him that his loyalty to you and them was was without exception it was incredible and i you know probably the greatest team coach of any team sport i think what did he tell package what did dean smith tell you coach about 
trying to play Stackhouse and Iverson together. He said it never worked. Um, and he was right. You know, it was so unfair to Jerry. Because Jerry was there before Iverson, and they used to call the Spectrum Stack's house. And then all of a sudden, the first pick in the draft is Allen Iverson, and they're supposed to play together. And, you know, it just it wasn't a good fit. Because, one, um, Allen was not a true point guard. Allen was just this incredible, incredible scorer. Um, and Jerry was also. And and it was just a hard combination to play together. And I couldn't figure out how to use them, to be honest with you. Um, and both unbelievably talented. And then, uh, you know, we ended up trading Jerry. Uh, he went to Detroit. We ended up getting Theo Ratliff and um, Aaron McKee, which was two unbelievable players that complimented Allen, allowed Allen to be Allen. Then we got George Lynch by accident. We got Tyrone Hill by accident. We got Eric Snows, fourth string point guard for Seattle. And all these guys allowed Allen to be Allen. Um, and I, you know, I quite honestly had to learn how to use them. Because I used to tell Alan, if you're the point guard, your idea is to try to beat five guys because of your competitiveness. If, if I could get you to figure out to play off the ball and us figure out ways to get you the ball and have people around you to sacrifice and allow you to do those things, it would be easier for you. And it it took him a while to understand that. but. Eventually, I think he became the most exciting player to ever play, maybe. Um, and it, was, it wasn't easy for him. And there were a lot of things that, you know, I had to learn to adjust to. And I had to surround him with players that, you know, truly accepted and allowed Allen to be Allen. Um, and it, it's probably one of the greatest, you know, things that have ever happened in my life. Um, you know, I think if I had to do it all over again, I could have done better in terms of him. But uh, pretty excited about what he accomplished. And it helped me so much to be around him. And now the more I look back on it, even though there were some heartaches involved in it, it was probably one of the most important times of my life. You've said that you could say almost anything to Iverson privately, but if it was in front of a group or his teammates that, that he couldn't handle it, how did you discover that? <laughs> probably the first time I ever, you know, tried to coach him. Um, he had so much pride, which made him so great, that it was hard for him to accept anybody to get on and in front of the group. But that being said, in privately, we could we could share anything with one another, um, and he accepted, you know, coaching and what I was trying to do. But in front of the group. 
it was very difficult. So the only way I could get things across to Alan in front of the group was to get on Eric Snow or Aaron McKee or Theo or Dikembe or Tyrone. And they understood, you know, why I was getting on them. And Alan had such a love for his teammates that he would get get upset with me, you know, which was kind of kind of interesting. But it, you know, there are a lot of things, you know, we can talk about practice and him not coming and him not caring about it. But every time he stepped on the court to try to play a game, you knew he was trying to win no matter what and would take full responsibility for whatever happened. And his teammates admired that. Um, you know, teammates, some teammates couldn't play with him. Um, you know, every year, everybody kept telling Billy King and myself and ownership that we needed to bring in other scorers to play with him. And in so many cases, that was not a good thing. You know, he needed different kind of players around him to allow him to do the things he was capable of doing. Um, so it didn't always work out, but um, maybe the greatest small man ever to play, maybe had the greatest heart of anybody, maybe the toughest player to ever play. I don't know. I think you'd be hard-pressed to tell me anybody any different. Yeah, and I know Adam and I both grew up in the Philadelphia era, so we're certainly not going to agree disagree with you on how tough Iverson was. Is there a – did you have a moment with – with Iverson that you thought that you'd never get over? (laughs) That's comical. That happened every day. (laughs) (laughs) You know, every day it was like going to church and going to confession and then, you know, saying everything's going to be all right tomorrow. But, but again, um, you know, my relationship with him now has only grown and grown gotten better and better I brought him back to SMU to talk to my team and um, I think everybody whoever plays this game ought to hear Alan talk because he tells you the good and the bad the things he could have done differently he doesn't make excuses but it's it's amazing I think the league should hire to let him go around and tell these young kids um, until it you know, I haven't been coaching the last few years, but um, everywhere I go in the airports, a lot of people don't know my name, but they know I coach Allen. Huh. Um, every team that, you know, uh, that I've been invited to watch play, um, after practice, kids come over to me. Um, and always ask me about Allen, and almost everyone would tell me he's their favorite player ever. Uh, it's just remarkable. I, I, you know, I like to tell him about that because I used to get on him all the time to let him know that he never realized the positive effect he had on people and how many people you know, just admired him. And there were certain things that if he would just, you know, try to be a little bit different, that he could have so much more of a positive effect on young kids. 
and it was difficult for him because he had, he had so many people that were in his ear. He had so many people he was taking care of. Uh, it was it was not easy for him. But in in terms of the effect he had on the game and his teammates and me, um, even though there were days that were difficult, right. I, in, in those private moments, did did he open up to you about everything else that was going on in his life? Was he was he more vulnerable in those one on one moments? Oh yeah, he. We both opened up to each other because, you know, everybody has things that, you know, sometimes you have to share with other people that you care about, know, care about you. But, uh, but again, you know, you look back on it and you hope at the time you did the very best you could with them. But I look back on them. There are so many more things now that I wish I could have done better um but uh again i was lucky to have the coaches around me that i did i'll give you a funny story the first time i ever took alan out of a game when he walked by the bench he kind of mf'd me um and i almost jumped up and wanted to fight and my coaches just kind of pulled me down and I took him out at the end of the first quarter because it gave me a chance to give him a long rest. And then I put him in at the beginning of the second quarter. And then I did it at the end of the third quarter. Same thing happened. Um, you know, because the guy hated to ever leave the court. He wanted to play 48 minutes every game. And, you know, emotionally, he's going to tell you exactly how he feels. And if you get sensitive to that, you know, you're not going to be able to handle it. But People been on my ass to write a book, um, and I always always wanted to write a book to share what I was taught. You know, just not a show and tell book, a basketball book, because I played for the greatest coaches of all time. If if you go back over who I played for, and I coached the greatest players, and I sat next to the greatest coaches, and I wanted to share the, their ideas, but I. I could never think of a title. And now I coached Allen 600 games and he MF'd me 1,200 times. So that would be the title of my book. <laughs> <laughs> well, oh, we, can start the, we can start the audio book with this, with this podcast. How about that? Yeah. <laughs> I don't know about that. <laughs> Go ahead, uh, I, I was I was going to ask you, you know, in dealing with, with Iverson and having this relationship you did and trying to figure him out. I'm always curious, in addition to the coaches, what what other players that you were around that, that experienced greatness and competitiveness did you talk to about your relationship with Iverson and how to get through to him? I mean, were there discussions with Michael Jordan or with David Thompson or guys in the past? I know you've referenced the fact that Rick Barry was a guy that didn't really like to practice, but brought it on game day. So, so when you think back to the players that you had relationships with, who did you reach out to in, in those circles and, and try to discuss your relationship with Iverson about? Well, I played with Rick. Rick mm-hmm. Before Rick hurt his knee, he might have been the greatest player I ever saw. Man, it was unbelievable when I was with the Oakland Oaks. But he used to frustrate Doug Moe and I like crazy because – 
you know, he didn't like to practice. David, you know, was people don't realize how good David Thompson was, but they were way before Alan, after Alan, everybody else. Whoever I coached always asked me about Alan. Um, you know, because I really, as great as Michael was, and it's, you know, and, you know, we we all know it. nobody could be any better than Michael Jordan, even though it's hard to, I don't think it's fair when you talk about Bill Russell or Will Chamberlain or Jerry West or Oscar Robinson, you know, or Kareem, to compare players. They're all different. Larry Bird, Julius, I, I they're all different. They came from different eras. They played, you know, at, at different positions. But Allen, I mean, so many people just love this guy. Uh, and they had reason to because, you know, you know the passion of the fans in Philly. When, when you walk on the court in the arena in Philly and, and you see what Allen did night in and night out, knowing what he was going through physically. To not love him, uh, you had to be really callous. To not appreciate what he was trying to do. And all the players I coached, you know, would always ask me about guys like David Robinson, like David Thompson, if they knew it. Like, I would always bring up players that I coached you know, and admired in the qualities that they had. Um, it's, you know, I I look at that Philly team, you know, when you, people always laugh at me. and I knew we would beat the Lakers in 2004 because if we would have been healthy in 2002, I thought we, I don't think, you know, you could say we would have beat the Lakers because they were phenomenal, but we'd have had a healthy Matt Geiger or if Matt would have played or had George Lynch or, you know, Aaron McKee and Eric Snow playing on bad legs. You know, I don't know what that team might have done in that series. But if you look at that roster, you'd shake your head and say, how the hell did that team get to the finals? <laughs> you know, we got Roger Bell out of the YMCA. Mm-hmm. You know, just before the season ended. But the reason they got to the finals is because of the character of that group and because of Allen Iverson's greatness. Um, and I think everybody in Philly, you know, I can't tell you how many people tell me when I go to, back to Philly that that might have been their favorite team, even though, you know, we won with Julius when Billy Cunningham was coaching and, you know, we won when Alex Hannum was there, but they appreciated that team because of the way they played and the way they competed. Um, it's it's it makes me feel great. I, I I wish I wish Allen was you know more connected instead of just being an ambassador. I, I wish he was part of that that organization because I think every every person would benefit by being around him and having him, you know, talk about his experiences and, you know, his love for that city and love for that team. Be kind of neat. Speaking of the 01 team coach, we had Tom McCulloch on last week and 
Todd said, he said, ask, ask coach if he remembers the time that in a timeout. And he asked me, uh, could you, could you catch an alley-oop? And, and he said, of course. And he said, he drew up the play. Eric Snow threw the ball at the rim. My feet didn't leave the ground. Ball sails out of bounds. Coach never drew up an alley-oop for, for me ever again. You remember that? <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, but I, I remember we used to talk about this all the time. You could look at Todd. I Billy Billy um, Knight, Billy, excuse me, Billy King, who did an unbelievable job um, and was great to me. I remember when I got the job with Mr. Snyder, he wanted to make me president, coach, GM, everything. And I said, you can't coach a guy and tell him he's the greatest and then negotiate a contract. <laughs> um, it's true. I said, so I said, I don't, I don't know if I could do that, Mr. Snyder. And I said, I got a young kid named Billy King that I think is really going to be a great GM. And he didn't want to ha- even think about that. He, and I said, give him a year. And then all of a sudden, you know, Mr. Snyder realized how great Billy was, and the name became really, really, really close. I think it might have been the toughest thing Mr. Snyder ever did was to fire Billy. But um, I, I just kind of lose in thought. But but Billy, in the draft, I think we drafted Todd at 55, if I'm not mistaken, out of the University of Washington. And I had watched Todd play, and he seemed nothing like anybody I would draft. Because I always wanted long, athletic guys that could play multiple positions. But he had, he did the most unusual things athletically that a guy his size would blow you away. Now, jumping was not one of them. But he really had a quick twitch, and he had unbelievable hands. And uh, it's it kind of funny when we were talking about it. I don't think we talked about this on the show. But um, when you drafted second-round guys at that time, you only gave, guaranteed them two years, and then they were free agents. Unless I don't think you could give them any long, longer-term contracts. And he had two pretty good years, and um, he became a free agent, and he told me, he said, Coach, I want to stay here, um, and money is not not going to be the deciding factor. I just want to stay, be part of this team. And uh, New Jersey offered him $36 million at the time, which was a huge contract. And I remember he came in, and we – Billy and I met in our a conference room with his wife and his agent and Todd and and Todd came out and said, Coach, you know, we got offered this great contract, but you know, money's not gonna be the deciding factor and next thing I knew his wife grabbed his arm and <laughs> kind of kind of scarred him up a little bit. And uh and then Billy and I looked at him and said, Todd, you, you know, that kind of money you can't pass up. Yeah. And uh, he ended up leaving. And unfortunately, he had that strange disease in his foot. And 
never really got to play much longer, even though I think he went to the conference finals with the Nets one year. He, he went to the, I mean, he no, went to the NBA finals to, the next year. And, with the Lakers, NBA, the Lakers. Yeah, right. The NBA finals, right. But Todd was unique. He was, yeah, but he didn't, we didn't throw him any more lobs. Uh, I don't remember that timeout, but I, I always drew up plays after timeouts, but I, I back guarantee I didn't draw up another lob play for Todd. All right, some quick hitters, Coach. What's your favorite Broadway show? Uh, well, my mom took me to My Fair Lady when Rex Hallerson and Julie Andrews were in it. Um, uh, that was... That was great. I like Stop the World. Uh, Les Mis now is probably um, the one I love the music most. But that was one of the neat things. All my contracts, I was always allowed a week in New York. I go to the U.S. Open in the during the day and a Broadway show at night. Oh wow! I grew uh, up. I grew up with my mom having appreciation. Broadway and my brother and I used to go whenever we could and that still hadn't changed your your favorite car other than your 58 Corvette that's in storage <laughs> my favorite car well my funniest one is the first new car I got was a 19 uh, I think 67 red Volkswagen and my grandfather was mad at me that I bought a German car since I'm Jewish. But, uh, um, I think my favorite car I ever got when I, when I signed to play coach Charlotte, um, my bonus was I got a, a small C 300 Mercedes that was two tone that was brown and had a kind of like a pearl top. And I thought that was a, a gift from God. That was pretty neat. I'd say. What was the, uh, the last house you bought? Wow, the last house we bought. I guess one in Philly. Um, the last one I bought. Who's your... I love Philly. We, we, we all do. When I went to SMU, um, I ended up getting a condo that I could walk to campus. And both my kids happened to come here, which I didn't realize was such an extra benefit. So that turned out great where they they needed a meal or needed to do their laundry or something like that. They would come hang out. Coach, who's your favorite current player? Oh, wow. There's a lot of my love. Um, that's kind of that's kind of hard. Um, I have such appreciation for some of them. The thing that's neatest to me now is what guys are doing, giving back. You know, I, I recently went to a reunion in Good, Goodyear you know, where I played after college when there weren't a lot of NBA teams and the industrial league was so great. Um, and it was right by a school that LeBron just built. Um, and I start to hear about so many of these things, these players are giving back. That's, 
that's making me feel pretty good. But um, if I had to turn on a TV, it'd be more about games and teams playing than um, favorite players because there's so many I love and admire. All right, you have a uh, a favorite all-time role player that you coached? <laughs> no, everybody asks me my favorite player I coached. So the best well, I'm, that's why I was going with that's why I was going with role player. Yeah, I had so many great role players; it's unbelievable. Um, I could I could give you uh, I'll give you an example. When we got David Robinson. Um, David was kind of a nerd, um, and I mean that in a good way. You know, he played musical instruments, he read, he, was, he had so many other interests. But when we got him, uh, we needed to bring another guy that was a great player to take some pressure off David because he didn't want to be the guy. You know, he all of a sudden he turned into a great player without even realizing it. So we brought Terry Cummings in. Um, but I've had so many guys, you know, that made sacrifices for teams. You look at Snow and Aaron McKee and Dikembe, Tyrone and Theo. And then, you know, I go to Charlotte, I look at Boris Diaw and Raymond Felton. I I mean, I could, I could go on and on with with guys. uh, And I would, Everybody on my Detroit team, my New Jersey team, I, I, I mean, it's it's even hard to imagine how lucky I've been. I, you know, I coached at Kansas, North Carolina, UCLA, SMU. I mean, how many guys get to do that and start in the NBA, coach AAU? be involved with so many Olympic teams, being on the Olympic team. I'm, I mean, it's it's just remarkable how, how my life turned out the way it was because I wanted to be a high school history coach and coach baseball, basketball, and football. And all of a sudden, you know, I look back on what I was allowed to do. It's crazy. And then when you see guys like uh, Pop, you mentioned, and R.C., and Tad Boyle, Mark Turgeon, John Calipari, Bill Self, Alvin Gentry, I could go on and on. Um, uh, and, 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 and Bill Self, see what, what they've done and what they've given back to the game. Uh, it's, it's remarkable, um, and you got to be lucky to be in that position. You also nine playoff appearances. Uh, one was ABA to refer back to earlier in the conversation. Yeah, and so coach, so coach, was that when I said eight, eight NBA, and then the ABA made it nine? No, all my ABA teams made it, um, but. Um, I, I, you know, I coached Charlotte, Charlotte Greensboro and Raleigh was my first job. And I only got that because they turned down a bunch of guys and coach Smith, um, got me that job. And then the team was sold 
um, because Ted Munchak bought the team just for a tax write-off. <laughs> and he sold the team to St. Louis, but he sold every, every um, you know, body but me. He said they weren't allowed to take me. And I was free to go anywhere I wanted. And I, uh, I was coaching a USA team with Doug Moe in Russia. And the Celtics tried to hire me. And, but I didn't realize it. Carl Shear, who was with me in Denver, told Denver, Doug and I were going with him in Denver. So I ended up going to Denver. Huh. Um, and then Denver, Denver ended up merging with the NBA, if you remember. And okay. Our first year in Denver, uh, we made the NBA playoffs. Four teams from the ABA went to went to the NBA. We weren't allowed to take part in the NBA draft, and then we weren't able to take part in the dispersal draft of the other teams that weren't taken in the NBA. And both San Antonio and Denver both made the playoffs, and that showed you how good the ABA was because we both won our division, and there were only four divisions. So. But I think I, I think I was involved with nine NBA teams. I'm not sure. Well, either either way, when <laughs> when we compile the list of the, the the greatest coaches of all time, and it's it's an awfully short list. There's no question that that your name is is on that list, Coach. I mean, it, it, and I think that's the the bottom line. We thank you for all your time. The the this show is the Catch and Shoot podcast, and so we always like to close out the show. And I know this is going to be difficult because of all the players that you appreciate through the years, but you're coaching and you have one guy, you could have played with him, um, coached him. You could choose one guy, catch and shoot situation down one in a game seven. Who are you going with? <laughs> uh, I, I, my best buddy is Doug Moe. I'm going with Doug Moe. I mean, I I mean, this guy, uh, we started together. I played at Carolina with him. He was a senior and took me under his wing. And then uh, when we signed in the ABA, the only reason I got to play in the ABA is he said he wouldn't sign unless they signed me. And I was coaching at Carolina. And I had just turned down the Connecticut job. Coach Smith said, Larry, you'll never get another job. <laughs> uh, and I ended up going with Doug. Uh, and then we ended up coaching Carolina together when we both too hurt to continue to play. Then we went to Denver together. And then I begged Doug to go to San Antonio when he had a chance to be a head coach. And he didn't want to go. He told told me he had the greatest job in the world being assistant with me. And I never counted him as an assistant. He was like, you know, we were co-coaches, but he ended up having an unbelievable career. But he he would be the one because I was so connected with him, I guess. I see you two as Don't, the like the younger version of uh, Mel Brooks and Carl Reiner. Like their their, <laughs> their, know, their relationship. We had a, when we got our job in uh, Denver, we had a guy named Frank Hamlin who was left there. And Doug and I took over the job, and they used to call us Curly, Larry, and Mo. <laughs> so 
So I, I don't know, but uh, Doug Moe is pretty special uh, to me. But every, you know, hey, every like I said, there were very few that I coached that I, sure. I could count them on one hand that made me feel uncomfortable. And um, but other than that, nobody could have had it any better than me when you consider the people I coached and the coaches I played for and the coaches that sat next to me. It's pretty, pretty lucky. You're going to have a really hard time finding uh, the person that you end up choosing for the forward to that book. I'll tell you that much with all these names. <laughs> no, that's nice of you to say that, but I still want to stay involved in some way where I get up early in the morning and can help some young kids and young coaches and share what I was taught, but I don't know. I think this the way the game is now. When you get older, they think you get dumber. And that troubles well, it, me a little bit. Well, is it is it possible to do that with Quinn Snyder? Um, you know, I I don't know. I don't know. I they there's so many guys you know, I look at now, if you look at the staffs people have it's it's incredible the number of people they have um, that work. I I don't know. I don't I don't think you look around and see a Pete Carell or Johnny Bach or a Tex Winter sitting on the bench anymore. Do you? Yeah. No, no, you don't. It's, Not at all. And it's uh, it blows my mind because these young kids, whether they. They know it or not. At first, they look at you like you're older, and as soon as they gain your trust and know you, you care about them and want to share what you've been taught, uh, they'll give you almost anything. Uh, I mean, it's incredible. How yeah, the only one I think of is is I don't know if he's the oldest assistant in the league, but Ron Adams is. He's over seventy. That's that's the oldest one I can think of. Yeah, but you know, I, he, has he ever been a head coach? No, no, Ron was never a head coach. No, not yeah, not in yeah. not in the league. No. Yeah, and I, you know, but I'm I'm sure there's a lot like him that you got to respect. But you gotta you can't have an ego and you can't feel threatened and you only should think of if this guy can really help kids get better and coaches get better. That should be the only challenge for anybody. To me. And that should be the only thing that's really important because when you you think about, again, we're talking too long, but think about how many kids declare for the draft that don't get drafted. And think about how many young kids that are selected early in the draft that people after a year or two say that they're a failure, that people aren't really teaching them. It's, it's not their fault. They're not a failure. They haven't been given time and these guys that go to schools that are one and done the coaches that are phenomenal in college really don't have time to teach them really how to play they got to put them in a system right away and it's 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 not the easiest thing for a kid to make a transition right away from going from being a great athlete who's unbelievable talented, who has a family to support, which none of us had that pressure on when we were growing up. Our families made our lives better. Um, 
think about the things that these kids have to go through. And I, I think older guys that have been through it before can really help. Uh, I, I don't get it yet. I haven't figured that out. We figured it out. We'll, uh, we'll certainly let you know. And we started this podcast by asking you what you were doing today, aside from talking to us. Well, now that we've taken the entire day, I guess you can uh, focus on tomorrow. <laughs> I'm going. No, I'm going to. I'm going to go to. I'm going to go to SMU's practice. They they invited me, so I'm going to go watch them and get a little fix, which would be kind of fun. Yeah, that will that would be enjoyable. They're they're fortunate to have you around, Coach. We appreciate All it. Right. Thank you so much. Thanks, guys. Thanks so much. So <laughs> <laughs> that was that was something, and despite having an hour and a half with Larry Brown, certainly not enough time. I mean, it's, it's pretty cliche to say, well, you know, if we had more time, we could have gotten into this and that. And well, sure. I mean, if we had spent 24 hours with Larry Brown, you still don't get into everything, but I was really pleased with the ground, the ground recovered and how open and honest he seemed to be. Incredibly candid. And, no, it it's sort of something that we haven't ever really discussed on this podcast before. And I've never even asked you this question. So I'm curious now, you know, and Larry Brown probably is the greatest example of this. I've, I've interviewed two coaches that I literally had to ask myself, two, two people in my life that I've had to ask myself in my career, where do I start with this guy? And the first was Steve Kerr, you know, for his storied history, obviously, you know, his recruitment to Arizona, his whole story, and then obviously playing alongside Michael Jordan and under Phil Jackson. And then he goes on to all that, all that stuff. And that doesn't even include the warrior stuff and, and what he's done as a coach and as an announcer, Larry Brown, even more so. And so the question that I was going to ask you, and, and we haven't talked about this is sort of the process in order to get ready for an interview like this. And so what is, what is your process? How do you dive into the research? Yeah, I just rely on you. Really? You know, I know, yeah. I know you'll carry it. You know, so I, I, when I think of Larry Brown, and I think the first thing that you want to hear from Larry Brown, since, since so many people would like to hear so many different things, mm -hmm. I like to try to make, a, make the question general but still specific that might lead to something else. So by asking him, what did you do yesterday? What are you doing today? would give us a little bit of insight and a little bit of direction of where to take the interview instead of just going, all right, let's start at the beginning. Cause you can't just start at the beginning with Larry Brown. We don't, we don't know him personally. Now I feel like I do. And I've interviewed him before, but in a, in a much shorter segment for NBA radio on Sirius. So if we ask him, what did you do yesterday? And then what did you do today? And what are you going to be doing today? Then that allows us to get some sort of direction on where to take the next question and the jumping off point. Yeah. And, and what's fascinating is that there's so much to read about him and so many people have opinions and he's touched so much of basketball history. I mean, we got into a ton of it and still, I feel like there's stuff that we left in, and never really, you know, discussed his time. Yeah, I mean, there's a with... sports century on him. So, <laughs> yeah. I mean, imagine I mean, they did the hour sports century on him, but I, I don't think that in our first conversation with him, like this platform, I wasn't going to ask Larry Brown about, so, so have you now visited your father's grave? 
because right. he, because he hadn't for I think it was like forty years afterwards. And when he was six years old, and his brother Herb was eleven, and they told Herb that their father had died, but they didn't tell Larry. They didn't tell Larry for a few weeks. They thought he thought that he was that his father was traveling like he like he always did. That this I didn't I didn't think that this was the it, this might be the form for it at some point, but it wasn't for our first conversation with him, even though it lasted an hour and a half. And that's always hard for an interviewer because it's it's what do you what do you ask? What do you leave in? What do you what do you take out? And then and then there's things that just in the course of a conversation that he was bringing up that it was important to follow up on. But, you know, I mean, there's there's other stuff that the Bobcats, you know, he was he was fired by Michael Jordan, who was like family to him, that Carolina family, the time that he spent with the Knicks and his relationship with James Dolan was really good, but he felt like Isaiah Thomas, a guy that he always admired and loved how Isaiah played. And they had a great relationship. He felt like Isaiah wronged him. So there's, there's so much about Larry Brown's life and about how he has helped shape the game of basketball that it's a, it's where do you start and B, where do you go and see, okay, how much are you going to regret leaving some of those, those questions on, I guess, the cutting room floor. Yeah. And I don't, I don't regret, any direction that we went in or didn't go in because I also don't you know what I appreciate about doing interviews with you Adam is that it's not a you're not getting whiplash doing the interview like oh wait wait now they're going here and now they're going here no because you just we're trying to have a conversation with Larry and and the two of us are trying to stay on the same page and make transitions natural and knowing that we're not it, it's I think it's obvious when I listen to interviews it's obvious when an interviewer is just trying to fit things in. It's like when you call a game. I use about 10%, 20% of what I've prepared. If you're just trying to force stuff in, it's too much. It's, a, it's exhausting for the viewer. You don't want to do that. You got to react to what is in front of you on the floor or on the field when you're calling a game. And I think the same thing goes for an interview. And and to that point, I mean, look, it's it's pretty obvious that you and I, I like to find out as much as I possibly can about a person. And I always feel like I didn't even do enough research that I didn't even scratch the surface, especially with someone like Larry Brown, where you can read every article that that you can find. And, and I listen to a ton of interviews and I like to try to find places and times where he talked about something and it felt like he wanted to go deeper into it and wasn't asked about it. That's what, that's what really interests me at the core. Like, what hasn't he had a chance to reveal about himself that he would like to? And that's how I think I approach every interview. And that's been the fun part about doing all these with you is the idea that we both have that same general curiosity and we have things that we'd love to hear an answer for. And then there's also the part of like, what more hasn't that person told the world that they're going to be able to tell on, on this mm-hmm. podcast? All right. So what's entertaining you this week outside of your anticipating an email back from <laughs> whatever river that was where you lost your sunglasses. <laughs> I'm listen, I'm waiting for that email. I'm waiting for that. Yeah. Uh, email. Out. So that's, that's, that's first and foremost. Um, I'll tell you the, uh, we talked about, you had talked about uh, the, when you see it, when they see us um, about the central park five, the Netflix yeah. um, series on that. And what was interesting is there's a follow-up to that where Oprah Winfrey interviewed you know, the cast and the director and writer and, and interviewed all five of those, of those men. And it was really interesting. And to hear them on a personal level, like what the, the, 
the miniseries meant to them, but but I think even more importantly, just to hear the story in their words, and it was so eye-opening and and so heartbreaking. And I think to me that was that was certainly the most fascinating thing that I that I saw this week. So that Oprah Winfrey interview uh, when they see us on on Netflix was was definitely um, you know the most uh, intriguing thing that I came across this this week. How about for you? Uh, certainly not my morning. Uh, that's for sure. That was, uh, <laughs> that was, that was not entertaining. Um, been watching Marissa and I have very different interests on, on what we see on TV, what we watch, but we've been watching the Kaminsky method on Netflix with Michael Douglas and Alan Arkin. Uh, Danny DeVito is actually in it also. Um, Sarah Baker, Nancy Travis, and it's, yeah, Michael Douglas is this older acting coach, and Alan or and he was an actor, and then Alan Arkin is his uh, is his agent, and then uh, and Alan Arkin's uh, wife had cancer and she died, and so it's it's a uh, it's it's a comedy, but it, <laughs> so, but it has it doesn't yeah, I sound know, like I it. Know. That's why that's why I said it's actually you know, it's, yeah. oh you guys actually did a good job. It's actually a comedy. But um, but there is a lot about, you know, getting older and, uh, you know, maybe it makes me maybe it makes me uh, get inside the heads of what what my parents are thinking. But uh, but, yeah, it's it's entertaining. And I, and I honestly I, I thought I was going to be entertained. Um, I'll, I'll be candid with this. So I was I was a finalist for the Washington Wizards TV play by play job. And I, I thought I was going to be entertaining myself this week with you know, maybe moving to DC and starting a, starting a career in, uh, in, in a dream job. And, uh, and they offered it to somebody else. So now it's, you know, you move, move on and, and you're always, it's always good to, to be employed while pursuing your, pursuing your dream job. But, uh, but that is, that is certainly, that's certainly been on my mind this week, but the, uh, Kaminsky methods helped a little bit. All right. Well, there you go. I, 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 I do want to say, I do want to say that, um, I was extremely disappointed to hear about the Wizards' job from from you when you when you told me about that. Selfishly, I was a little bit excited because I said, "Well, okay, no one's going to take away this this podcast that I get lucky enough to do with Noah each week." So that was awesome. Um, but uh, I just want you to know that there is an organization out there that's got your name all over it. And I'm excited to see where that ends up uh, becoming because you're a super talented guy. And I'm not just saying that because I love doing the podcast with you, but because I believe in that. And uh, obviously our producers would, would go right along with that, that sentiment. Yeah. Go on. Keep going. <laughs> no, that's it. That's all I can say. Uh, positive about you. Actually, oh, yeah. <laughs> that's all I'm obligated to, uh, oh, you have? to say. Maybe, maybe I'll update my, uh, my play-by-play reel and put that, uh, put those sentiments at the top. Mm-hmm. All right. Make sure everybody listens to the Mike Wise show. Also, he's got Chris Mullen on this week. We've got four podcasts here on the Pure Hoops Network. Go back and listen to the Todd McCulloch interview that we did last week. Also, Will Purdue and Hall of Famers up and down the board, on the court, behind the mic. You'll find it. We're up to, uh, I think it's almost about 30 episodes. Buckets, Boards, and Blocks with Monica McNutt and also the Pure Hoops podcast with Eric Newman and NBA champion BJ Armstrong. Thanks to our producers, Bruce Bernstein, Scott Turkin, the entire Pure Hoops media crew. You like that, huh? Just seamlessly thanking people now. What, what, wow. is, going on? what is going on with me? 
it's a new you. It's a new you. It must have been all these tears I shed this morning. With, with Seriously. It, oh my goodness. Oh. I don't even know. I don't even know how to respond to that, but I will say, and I think we close out the podcast in this way. Uh, best of luck to Eden. And I hope she <laughs> yeah. had a wonderful day at camp today. We appreciate it. Thanks, pal. Thank you. The Catch and Shoot podcast is a presentation of Pure Hoops Media.